Welcome to On Target, the podcast helping software sales leaders drive more pipeline and close transformational deals. I'm your host, Alex Elaine. Let's get into it. The first thing is you've got to have a decent product. It doesn't actually have to be the best. Every CEO will tell you that theirs is the best. You know that in reality, in a mature market, any product that survives has to have certain things, otherwise it's not going to survive at all. So you've got to have a decent product. You then need to really have a good idea of what your ICP is. Who are you really going for? Because if you're just going for everybody, a scattergun approach, that can only take you so far, right? And it starts to become more and more inefficient over time. So who am I trying to sell to? Why am I trying to sell to them? What is it about what, I'm, what we're selling them that actually going to make a difference to their business that even if they don't buy from me, they should think it's worth having that conversation. Welcome to On Target. My next guest, Mike Barclay, has been a sales pioneer for well over a decade, having spent over 17 years with Yell, a recent run leading EMEA for Hootsuite, and most recently as a strategic advisor to up-and-coming startups. Mike has an incredible story, which I cannot wait to unpack. And on that note, Mike, welcome to On Target. Thanks, Alex. Well, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Now, Mike, salespeople need an elevator pitch, and you would have had many pitches throughout your career over the years. So if you had an elevator pitch for yourself in 30 seconds or less, tell us how you'd introduce yourself. Okay, Alex. So basically, what I'm all about is flow. Everybody knows what flow is. It's about optimum performance. And what I do is help individuals and businesses achieve that flow by recognizing what their purpose is, by understanding what their superpowers are, what's make them different, what works for them, what's not working for them, and bringing more of that into the workplace. Because then they can be more authentic, and then they would achieve better results. So you get better performance, you get better style satisfaction, you get better revenue, you get better results. Great pitch. So it's all about the flow. We'll make sure we take note of that. Now, Mike, you, you've got a, a vast career, a lot of achievements, I'm sure many lessons, many learnings. So just walk us through your story, both personal and professional, whatever you're comfortable to share. Okay, well, I'll, I'll keep it brief because obviously with, when you've got as many grades as I would have if I didn't shave, there's a lot to tell. Okay, so essentially, as my, my, my parents are Jamaican, came over in the 50s, so Rindrush generation. As typical, my father came over first, my mother came over later. So there's that separation. So all those things that happens in the family. So they, they had five children in Jamaica and another three over here, me being the last. And my father died when I was six weeks old. So you can imagine then that growing up, things could be quite tight, right? Naturally, in any family, that's going to happen, particularly when you're children of immigrants. But we got on. We did what we, we could. My mum was an absolute machine in terms of her ability to keep us on the straight and narrow, despite the challenges that she had. And I guess that it would be my first inspiration, right? Just getting back working hard. I disappointed my mum because I didn't go to university and I chose to go into sales. And I know you've uh, recently posted, Alex, about how a lot of diaspora see sales as not a great career. And so I did spend myself saying to people, it's not the devil's work. And even now, um, some of my siblings still kind of think, well, you know, you'd have been so much better if you were a lawyer, whatever it might be. But that aside, going to sales was a great thing for me to do. So um, I did some stuff in recruitment, I did some product stuff, and I landed at the Yellow Pages business. And the Yellow Pages were my clients at the time as a recruiter, and they were recruiting for 
fast track people to, to management. So six months carrying the, carrying the bag, doing the sales rep's job, proving that you knew what you could do, and then trading into management. So that's what I did. And so within two years, I was promoted to senior manager. By the time I was 29, I was the first and youngest reader director and the only black one. <laughs> and continued my career with, with them for quite some time and ended up running national and key accounts for, for many years. So a superb run with them. 2008, you know, we were, we were, I helped them to launch their internet products like Yell.com, like talking pages. But it's definitely the time to, to make a move for me. And there's an opportunity to take some early uh, voluntary redundancies. That's what I did. A uh, couple of years off, bought another house, did a few bits and pieces of consultancy and thought, what's my 2.0, right? And the beauty of a company like Yell, when you've done 17 years with them, is the volume of training that you've got, the more experience, because it's a highly productive, very focused business. So I've been off to CIM to learn about marketing for senior sales leaders. I've been to Ashford to learn about leadership. And it was internal training. So, okay, I'm not going to do another corporate job. Where can I use those skills? And clearly what I understand is sales and marketing really well. I've been selling to national key accounts, so I understand big brands. And obviously by this time, SaaS was coming through, right? So digital product SaaS, obvious fit. These companies were younger. They were scrappier. They were often founder-led. They didn't have that degree of um, infrastructure, if you like, and training, but they had that need and that, and that greed to make things happen. So what I was could be able to bring to the table was, this is one guy who's got all this stuff that you don't know about running a large org, but is happy to sell to brands as well and wants to work with you. And that's how I got into SaaS. And as you know, for the last 10 years, I've been doing it as a consultant working for overseas companies that are Series C, who want to get into a new market, particularly Europe, with a new product. A lot to unpack in that. So we need to break some of this down. Right? So <laughs> let's go back to Yell. Let's cast your mind back to those days. So you mentioned the youngest, the only black sales leader at that time. Talk to us about what that experience was like and how you actually rose into that role, especially when you were the only one and clearly managed to break through being also the youngest one as well. So let's contextualize that. So Yellow Pages at the time was the largest employed sales force in Europe, possibly the world. We had 2,000 people in sales. And I mean, in sales, not bits around it, in sales, right? So 145 different sales divisions. So you had junior sales people who just carried the bags, sold, sold red advertising. We had telesales people who did you know, a lot of new business and small adverts. Then we had a senior division which dealt with bigger clients. Okay, and that's still first-line management. So I did those two jobs before I got my first, re my first region. So I was then promoted to go and set up a new region as part of our expansion in the Midlands. So I started off with one team with a brief that I knew I had to get to five within a year and a half because of what we were doing. So all that recruitment, all that, management, all the, all that leadership training, et cetera, et cetera. So the context being that there are hundreds of leaders when you've got a sales force that big, but there are only, there are only 35 division directors and I was one of those. Wow, pretty pretty special to uh, hear that you managed to accomplish that. Now, when, when we think about SaaS careers nowadays, two years, typically the average tenure in role. And then if you get into leadership, less than that, you did 17 years. I mean, it's, it's a huge amount of time and it's very, very rare and uncommon in this era. So 
Talk to us about why you stayed for as long as you did. Well, it's an interesting company. And at different stages of your career, you'd have different reasons why you'd answer that question. We used to say that people new starter either did three months or less, one year or less. And if we got them through the second year too, they're probably going to stay for as long as they possibly can. Because in the first three months, you get out there and you realize it is tough, right? I mean, everyone says, oh, everybody's got yellow pages. Got to be easy to sell that, right? <laughs> yeah, everybody's got yellow pages. It is easy to sell a ad. It's not easy to hit the targets we were setting, right? So we had productivity targets, as in literally how many sales per week you did, how many calls per day you must do to make that happen. So, you know, very, very, very structured. And that structure... Gave you opportunities, but it gave you a lot of stress. So if you couldn't keep up with the pace and the stress, you were attrition within that first three months, right? If you got through that and you started to earn the money, you then got, do all that, do that next sort of nine months, you'd get to the point where you think, do I really like this or not? And we worked because of the publishing in a cycle. So you'd do one directory, another directory, third directory, back to the first. So basically once you've done all three and you're thinking, if you're waking up thinking, I'm going to go start that again, Right, that's when you have that attrition in the first year, and then clearly, if you got through two cycles, you were then seasoned, tenured, and stayed with it. We paid really well. You know, we probably paid the best salaries for advertising reps at the time. Salaries, we were more salary than commission, so it was like seventy thirty split. So that was really attractive to people. We had fabulous training, so. If you could go back and find the magazines, they'd tell you that IBM, Yellow Pages, Xerox, Pinny Bowes, Canon, those are the five companies you went to if you wanted to be trained properly in sales. We were one of those, right? So we gave people a real opportunity to really succeed. We were demanding, but once you got into that process, you just keep doing it. So yeah, we had really good retention. And you're from a, just an energy and a mindset standpoint, it really touched me when you were just talking about the pressure and the pace, right? And this is something that we all experience as sales leaders within this space. So how have you sustained and how did you sustain certainly through those times with so much pressure, with all of that scrutiny? What things did you have in place to allow you to endure? Well, some of that is quite personal in as much as, you know, come from the background as I did with my father that I did, run my working two or three jobs, trying to bring up all these kids, keep us off the street, stop us getting in trouble. There was a lot of discipline that came through from that, but also a real hunger to have your life be better. And so you got a good job with a good company and you stuck at it. You really worked at it, yeah? And given that it was a company that was really meritocratic, every company's got other issues, not, but that's not what this was about. In terms of meritocracy, it was pretty good. And, you know, as a black guy going into a company like this, where I could start earning money and I know that at the end of the year I can go, hey, look, that certificate says that I'm one of the good guys and nobody said, yes, you are. That was also a real draw because you knew that if you hit your number and you weren't an idiot, (laughs) you were going to be okay. And if you're a good guy, you could get opportunities. It begs the question around the fact that, you know, you've now had the fortune to be able to experience really two eras in a way, right? The the, the Yell days and then seeing the rise of SaaS and then being able to lead through SaaS. And we'll talk a bit more about some of the tactical things you've done there. But I'd love to know what differences you've seen when you observe those two eras, when you talk about 
work ethic, pace, things of that nature. Do you feel that the eras are the same in that regard? Or do you feel like you've seen a bit of a, a change over time in that sense? That's an interesting question. I mean, I, in some ways, am slightly limited because during that period, I was only working for an organization and had a very specific culture, right? But what we have seen, though, is that how quickly brands can grow, right? So Yellow was a super brand, and it was founded in 1966, and, you know, it ran for 50 years and all that, shit, all that stuff. And at the peak, we had something like half a million customers and X billion revenue, whatever it might have been, right? That kind of number, you could hit in two, in two or three years now. So the way businesses grow has changed massively. The way markets work has changed massively. And that in itself changes how people think about work, right? Because you had to build a career over time, yeah? In those, those areas, you can now build a career quite quickly if you get in the right company. And sometimes... I see now when I'm interviewing somebody saying, well, you know, I was the greatest guy and I hit my number, I was the greatest girl and I did all this, et cetera. And I look at the number and they might have done 137% in a company that did 176%. Right. Now you wouldn't see that in those days, right? Increment of growth, you know, 10, 30% of growth was massive. Telecoms were the biggest growth, but 30% was massive, right? So there was a broad change in terms of how quickly you build a brand of yourself. And that's, reflective of how quickly brands build themselves. What I think is a shame is that big companies have lost the focus on that fundamental training. So what happens now is that people, you say people stay for a couple of years, absolutely. You join an organization, your induction, maybe three weeks, four weeks, your ramp, maybe three, maybe three months, and then you're just expected to get on with it. There's not that complete commitment to building your skill set fundamentally training you so you know of what you can do. So you were taught their way rather than talk the way. So if you get a classically trained salesperson and you gave them a product and you just let them play with it for a while, they'll start to work out a sales story because they understand features of benefits, etc. If you get a non-classically trained salesperson, you tell them what to say. And if that doesn't work, they kind of falter. So I think that's one of the changes that I've seen. And I think that's why the tenures are shorter because people do not have that same depth of resilience based on their skill set and training. It's a great call out. Uh, when I think back to my own start, first company I, I worked for in, in our space was, was Danwood Printers and Copiers. And I always remember a big part of the reason why I joined them was they had at the time a really, really well-renounced sales academy. And it was a, you know, six week boot camp, super intense. And it just laid incredible groundwork. And I look back on that experience that first year, very akin to a lot of the way you've described your experience at Yale. And, and I just don't believe I would be here in this capacity without that first year. It was super high pace, really demanding training, KPIs, phone calls, the whole shebang. But my goodness, it made everything else feel a lot easier after that. I got, I got to tell you. you know. Can I ask you a question? Did you express the same thing that was that three-month, one-year attrition in copiers? And if you got through that, you knew what you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was uh, at times a little bit of a meat grinder, right? Because you, you came in <laughs> and you you either had it or you didn't, right? And it was that those moments where it got tough. And I don't know if you had a similar experience, Mike, but I remember times where, you know, I was doing well and then I'd have friends say, well, Alex is doing something right. So they'd try and jump in the game. 
And on average, they'd last about two to three weeks and it was game over, you know. I said, yeah. this this game, you, you know, you, you are paid well, but they want your pound of flesh for it. So you've got to be willing to roll up your sleeves. Well, I mean, given that I'm talking about in the 90s, right? You're prospecting, your, your, your leads were, that's just straight. Because obviously we're doing canvas. I was, at, I was selling, uh, selling uh, cab equipment as well. That's just straight. And you come back and say, oh, there are no prospects. How many buildings have you been into? How many times have you been thrown? Your other question was, have you been thrown out this week then? <laughs> no. In that case, you're not prospecting hard enough. Right. I'm not trying to say that's a great culture. I'm not saying it'd be right for today, but it does definitely hone certain skills. <laughs> this is a fun conversation for sure. I want to shift gears into a, a couple of tactical things here, Mike. One of them being you, you, you've built teams over many years now, both y- your own teams and now working with other startups to, to advise them in that same capacity. So talk to us a bit about some of the core pillars of, of building, sustaining and scaling best-in-class sales teams. Okay. Well, the first thing is you've got to have a decent product. It doesn't actually have to be the best. Every CEO will tell you that theirs is the best. You know that in reality, in a mature market, any product that survives has to have certain things, otherwise it's not going to survive at all. So you've got to have a decent product. You then need to really have a good idea of what your ICP is. Who are you really going for? Because if you're just going for everybody a scattergun approach, that can only take you so far, right? And it starts to become more and more inefficient over time. So who am I trying to sell to? Why am I trying to sell to them? What is it about what I'm what we're selling them that actually going to make a difference to their business? That even if they don't buy from me, they should think it's worth having that conversation. So you want that category of specificity. Then I think that is about the great people. You know, it is about having the great salespeople. And it is about working to find, you know, there's lots of conversations about, do you recruit for skill? Do you buy it for attitude? That conversation is a bit facile unless you break it down to a specific role. You know, if you want a very senior technical salesperson with a long sales cycle, his attitude alone is going to get him there. He's going to have to have, or she is going to have to have all of these other skills as well. If you're getting somebody for their first SDR job, yeah, attitude is almost everything. So you get the right people. And then in terms of the actual moving forward, though, there has to be a partnership between marketing and sales. Got to have a partnership because in all the SaaS businesses I've been in, if it's just push, that's hard. You need someone creating demand, someone creating awareness, you need a degree of synergy between the sales leadership and the marketing leadership, and sometimes that's not there. So they're actually coming up with the same ways, they measure the same ways, so that they know that they, because if their guys saying, of their team saying, we need more X, they can recognize that, yeah, that actually makes sense. They can talk to product, whatever it is, to make sure they've got more X. And equally speaking, the sales team knows that we are doing what we need to do. You've got to hold up your end. You mentioned the the point around attitude when talking about talent. I just want to double tap on that in the sense that there's also this debate around whether certain characteristics can be built in essence or whether they can be encouraged or sparked in someone. I'd love to get your perspective when you, you think of that word attitude or we talk a bit about discipline and work ethic. Do you believe that these things can be coached and developed or do you see them as innate characteristics that someone's just born with? Some of them you can improve. Some of them you can bring back. And some of them have to be innate. So what do I mean by that? So 
I can improve somebody's work ethic by getting them to understand how to work more efficiently, give them a sense of purpose of what they're doing. All the stories about why you're doing something, you know, the, the, the story about building a cathedral, that the person who knows they're working on building a cathedral is going to be twice as effective as the person who just thinks of smashing rocks. All those stuff, all those stories that you may have heard in the past. So you could do those. You can have a person who has previously been successful, but wandered off and lost a bit of mojo or whatever, and you could bring that back. But if somebody fundamentally doesn't have that get up and go, that desire to deal with the you know stress of the hero to zero, right? Your best salesperson on 276% of a quota at the end of the sales period starts the following day on zero, right? If they don't have that kind of get up and go, that fire in their belly, you can't give them that. You can't give them that bit. They have to have that. The question that it puts in my mind is that when talking about your own story, when talking about the premise of just discipline, you mentioned your upbringing, you felt played a, a massive role in that. And so to those people listening that maybe say, well, look, I had it pretty pushy growing up. Do you feel that those people can continue to develop their discipline, for example, in some of these other things? Or do you just feel like there is a component in this where your upbringing, your early life experiences ultimately just dictates who you're going to be moving forward. I think it has a huge influence, but I don't believe anybody's defined by their upbringing. There are people where that becomes the definition, but something else has gone along to make that the definition. So what I mean by that is if you have had to deal with attrition and that's made you stronger, that's fine. That's my story. But I don't believe that is better to have attrition than nurture. So if people have been nurtured and had a good positive environment, that's also fine. It still become then it starts to become other things, right? So for me, I grew up in a nutritional environment for given reasons, which we've just discussed. But I know lots and lots of really great people who grew up in, in much more nurtured environments, but then they had ambition. They believed that they, they, were, they were almost coached that they should do these things, but they had the ethic to go for it. So I don't believe that whether either you have to have one or the other, but I believe that you have to look at what you have got and then have the extra ingredient that takes you further. I often describe it as fuel and, and energy, and it just becomes a case of where do you choose to channel that energy? So to your point of, you know, whether you've grown up in a, a nurture-based environment or you've had some ad adversity, there are different types of fuel sources and you can leverage them to really go left or right. I often talk about the fact that, you know, I always feel like I grew up with a chip on my shoulder, single parent household, didn't have it necessarily that easy. But that was fuel to, as I say, either go completely off the rails or to say, let me go and make things happen. And I, I probably still, well, I'd say that I still carry that chip, but I choose to use it for good reason and to make a, a great impact on this world. So I just like this overall conversation because I think it encourages people to to look inwardly and, and, and whether you had a great experience coming up or otherwise, or whether you're going through adversity now, choose to take that set of experiences and lean in, go forward, use that as fuel to help you to continue to pioneer. I don't know all you're saying there, you know, there, there are great similarities, similarities between us as you would expect. But one of the things you just said there was that fuel, you could either gone off the rails or take that, 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 that energy and do something with it. And so somebody who's being pampered or nurtured 
in, in our view. They, equally speaking, can think, oh, the world should come to me, or think, I've got all this opportunity, let me go and get it. And it's kind of the same thing. It's just different sides of the same coin. Yes. No, very, very well said. I want to just get your your overall summary on really the, the traits of the best salespeople that you've seen. So just think over your career, the best hires that you've made. What are the common themes, patterns, whether they're, they're behavioral, their mindset or otherwise, that really give some evidence as to these are the traits of best-in-class salespeople? The traits of consistently best-in-class salespeople, there's always outliers, liars. I think there's curiosity. I've never met a great salespeople who doesn't ask her questions and not always go, why is that? Because you know, that's all the way they get under the skin of everybody. They get to know what the prospect's doing, why they're doing that, and you know what they're interested in. You know, So the curiosity is essential. You know, a salesperson's not curious. They're not going to go and try and know more about the product than they have to. They're not going to try and think of new news cases. They're not going to, you know, go back to customers they've spoken before and say, look, how's it going on with it? And all those things make the salesperson benefit because of the stories that they could tell and so on and so forth. Stories being the next thing, all good salespeople are good storytellers. And the bottom line is that very few prospects really want you to sit there and list through features unless there's a technical buyer for a technical product. So they want to have a story of how this is going to make their lives better, how this is going to make their customers is better, and have a better experience, all those things. So good storytelling. They have a high amount of drive. And I am talking about more esoteric things than sort of core skills here. High amount of drive. And again, discipline. Because the bottom line is that you do have to get them to do it pretty much every day. I love that set of four, actually. All ones that I definitely agree with. I want to touch on just the premise of operational excellence with you, Mike, because, you know, one of the things I'm sure we can both attest to is that, you know, as sales leaders, that the week can get busy, uh, there can be time drains. And, you know, to the sales leaders listening out there, we'd love to just get your perspective on, you know, how you would generally think about structuring your week, how you think about the headline of prioritization to make sure that really you spend your time on the needle moving activities. Just talk to us about your holistic perspective and then we can dive deeper. Well, you kind of want to answer your own question there in terms of you really want to figure out what are those needle moving activities. Having worked in a big corporation, you know, I've told you all the growth of the benefits. So the drawbacks are that they can be very bureaucratic. There is a culture whereby a lot of sales directors want information on an ongoing basis. And therefore, instead of leaving those people to get on with the work, they ask them questions about what they're doing. Right? <laughs> okay. So I am got into an amount of uh, trouble having a conversation with a very senior director when I was working at Yale. And he's coming out, oh, but you know, one thing they say about you, Mike, is that, you know, you don't do all this, you, you know, you're not into all this daily reporting and you know, da, 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 and, da, da, and you're, you could be a little bit low touch with some of your people sometimes. Just saying, but look, more results. Good. Yeah, but what's there? Look, some of these guys need to speak to their people every day and ask them a bunch of questions. They know exactly how much they're going to miss by. They know exactly how much they're going to miss by. I'm saying to my guys, this is what I want from you. Give them space to go and do it so we hit our targets. <laughs> so the point being is that you've got to really figure out what are those value-added activities. Measure, yeah, measure, but not measure all the time, right? Measure the right things. Give people a good amount of direction, but don't control them. Whenever I get parachuted into an organization now, I say, look, 
I don't think I'm the smartest person in the room. If it turns out that I am, I'll be slightly disappointed. However, I'm never going to be smarter than all of you. So I don't come here thinking it's all about me. I come here it's all about you guys. Because you guys are the ones who do it. And if I can get you guys to all do what you need to do and know what you need to do and give you the space to do it, it makes my life easier. So I'm not here to get in your way. You're not here to support me. I'm here to support you. And that mentality, if, I've, if, I've, if I use that in my mind before, before I start the week, when I plan the week, then I'm planning the week about the right things. What can I do to enable my people to have more capacity to do more? What do I really need to do in order to keep my stakeholders happy to give them the right information? Once I've done that, how else can I get involved with influencing things to make them better rather than spend all my time measuring what's happened? It's all about that influence. Is what are you doing to push things forward, not how well can you count what's happened before? When you look at your weeks now, Mike, versus years ago, for example, have you made any active adjustments to help you to better maintain and sustain just from an energy standpoint? I mean, your your career's gone over quite an extended period at this point. And, you know, we hear the words burnout. We hear uh, people talking about our careers like an athlete's career, right? You get in, you make your money, you get out. You're still here, right? You're still still making noise and and, uh, working with prolific companies. So, have you made any active ad- adjustments to set yourself up to sustain over time in that regard? Uh, I've become even more ruthless about what actually matters. So from a performance management perspective, for managing performance, I, what, I'm really clear about what my expectations are. I'm really clear about the boundaries. And that is, how do you want to do it? And your way might not be the way I do it, but if, you, if that's going to work, you go out and try it. So I'm a real firm believer of making people very clear about what we need done, the output, helping them if they need support on how to do it, but giving them the space to get on with it. And I'm ruthless about that. And therefore, you know, there's certain things that will be unforgivable if you don't put in your report on time. I'm not going to bother you every day. So when I do need it, you make sure I've got it, for example which means that I can, and I'll explain why. Look, if you want me to manage all this other stuff that goes on in the background, all your support departments, get, get, make sure you're getting the respect, make sure you're getting the money for your incentives, make sure you're getting the this, these are the things you need to do for me. But, and you need to do those consistently and you need to own your part of the, the contract, which is doing the job, which gives me then time to do the other bits that you need. That's how it works. If I'm doing your job, no one's doing mine. So those are the things I really focus on. And those are the things I've become more and more ruthless on about over time. And so um, at a recent uh, contract where the CFO was quite heavily involved with sales. And after about four weeks, I contacted the CFO. I won't say what gender, because you probably work out who it was, because a recent one. And said, look, you know, you've, I've come on board. You're paying me a reasonable amount of money. I've got a reasonable amount of experience. I would hope that within the next month, you don't really do my job. And the response was, what do you mean? This is cetera. And I said, look, this is what it is. You hold me accountable for what the sales revenue you're going to doing. I hold my people accountable. If you're not seeing it, talk to me. Don't talk to them. Because all you're doing is disturbing their flow. Talk about flow, right? Last thing a sales manager frontline wants to know is a CFO ringing up and saying, can you talk to me about this account? They don't, they don't need that. They've got to talk to me anyway, right? So just... 
Let's make sure that people are doing the jobs they're meant to do. Let's make them really accountable. Let's give them every opportunity, but let's let them do it. Yeah, I um, that how that's how you sustain yourself, in my view, because then you are doing the right things, not doing things just because somebody wants you to. Yeah, there's a lot in that. There's just the premise of respecting the clock. It's is giving people the space to go and do their best work, but equally holding them accountable. Just you talking through that, Mike, it, it seems like you've got certain core principles that you really operate by. It sounds like that's evolved over time. What other core principles can we learn from? What other aspects of your game make up the Mike Barkley that we're talking to right now? Well, the, the, the furthest and guiding principle is that my job is to remove barriers to motivation. So again, when I land in a new company and they say, what's your management style? I said, look, I've never interviewed a person for a revenue role, not necessarily sales, that's because there's obviously sales and everything, but a revenue role, a targeted role where they say, I want to be mediocre. But six months down the line, managers all sit around going, oh, that person all this promise now they're mediocre. What happened in that six months? Did they change? Did we not know who they were? Right? Did they not know who they were? Or did something else happen? And I believe that often what happens is that we kind of get in their way a little bit. And so I'm always looking for ways of making the work easier. My firm belief is that if if you come up with a change, let's say you change your CRM system, right? You change how you want people to do the weekly reports, right? And six weeks, six months down the line, you're still having to police it, make sure they do it. Your change wasn't the right change. Because if it made sense... If it was doable, if they could see the purpose, why would they not do it? Because I'm working on the assumption that I've got good people. So what I'm saying is that whenever I make a change, whenever I'm sort of trying to lead people, I'm always looking to say, what is it getting in the way of them doing that? Because then once I've taken away the false barriers that we set, and it can be that your CRM system doesn't work properly, it can be that it's been so customized, it can be that people are asking for the wrong sorts of things. It can be that you don't know your ICP. It can be that marketing and sales aren't working. You know what? A myriad, myriad of things can be the things that get in the way. Once you've taken those out of the way and you said, that's my part, I told you to get rid, this, this, get, get rid of your barriers. How accountable do you feel about going out and doing what you, what about, what you said you'd do if I got rid of them? Right? So that's in principle, yeah? yeah? That my service is to make it easy for you to be best. When you think of being in a scenario where as a sales leader, you've walked into an existing team. So let's say you've walked into six to eight reps, so you haven't hired them versus the scenario where you've built your team, two very, very different pitches. And so to the sales leader that's out there, that's in a, let's call it a turnaround job where they've walked into eight reps, 20% a quota, there's not an immediate mantra enough, uh, let's say, um, breadth on the yardstick for them to just performance manage the team out. How does that then shift your perspective here? Because I, I see where your perspective works really well when you've built your own team, you've hired your own talent. But in that other scenario, I'm then like, well, how do we make that make sense there? Okay. Well, that's a classic scenario that you see. And Again, obviously, because I consult a lot, quite often what I've with the, the, the question when I walk in, I realize that there are these 
20% who are performing. They're probably the longest serving people. They probably have lots of praise, but don't get that much attention, as in people working with them, right? There's this bit in the middle that's a bit stodgy, and there's this lower performance of new people at the bottom. And what organizations and leaders do is spend too much time praising these people, not that they shouldn't be praised, and too much time worrying about those people. And the bit in the middle gets left. And there's a process now you can look it up. I don't ever recall going on a course about it, but now there's lots of courses about it. It's called Moving in the Middle. And you can look at the dozens of McKinsey written about it. There's loads of people worried about it. If you can get that middle bit, middle bit so you've probably got, say, your top performers are doing 110 to 120, right? You've got some new people on ramp, they're doing about 16. You've got some underperformers doing about 70. And you've got this bit in the middle. And the organizational performance is going to be like 75 to 85% overall against plan. And those people in the middle then will all be around that number. That becomes the number that people think is acceptable. So it's all about focusing your performance manager on those people because they do know what they're doing. They've been around for long enough. They're not on ramp. And getting those people to move by 5 or 10% changes everything. Because one, it's a group of people. All those 5 or 10% add up to almost like another two person. Two, it changes what's okay. I believe there's a hierarchy. People got a natural hierarchy, right? That's why it's in so many businesses, top performers are top performers for years. People line up where they want to be. If I want to be number one, I'm going to be number one. If I've got to do 110% to be number one, I'm going to do 110%. And you can say, oh yeah, but they'll get paid. The pay is part of it. If I've got to do 140% to be number one, that same individual that was doing 110 will start doing 140. Because if the middle comes out with 100 is normal, 110 doesn't sound exciting anymore, does it? <laughs> and how many times do you see that top before, those two top performers are absolutely unragged? They're not. In those scenarios, they know what they're doing. They're the people who look like what you would hope to see some working life, work life balance look like because they've got their work how to make the system work for them. So I focus on that middle piece, making that, that kind of number unacceptable. So when you get to 95, when you get to 100, anybody who joins the organization realize when they come off ramp, I'm expected to 100. You join an organization, everybody doing 85. When you come off ramp, what do you think you have to do? <laughs> Unless you want to be the top performer, you can fit into that hierarchy. You've got to move the middle first. And I've even been in an organization where they say, we want you to double the team. I say, no, I'm not going to double the team until I've started to address this middle performance piece. Because I don't want to re-recruit no of the people come into a culture where they believe 85 is okay. So I've got to make it that 95 is the minimum or 100 is the minimum before I even start recruiting. So great concept. I'm definitely going to take a look at that once we wrap. So thanks a lot for sharing that. Last few things from me, Mike. One of them is, I'd love for you to just cast your mind to a deal that sticks out in your memory, uh, whether it was your own uh, a member of one of your teams. And just talk to us about a key takeaway. Could be a lesson learned, some tremendous upside. Just just walk us through a key takeaway. Well, there's always a temptation of sales, right? So you always like to boast. There's always a temptation to talk about some really good deals. And I've done some ridiculous, very, very good deals with people like Nestle and Deutsche Telekom. But I've talked about one uh, with... I won't mention the organization, but they're a very well-known camera manufacturer, but also used to do copiers based out of Japan. Right? <laughs> and uh, they were looking to do an experiment. Um, I, was, I was working with Review at the time, who are a rating reviews company. So they were working with our, our biggest competitor. They were doing an experiment to see how they could surface some rating reviews on a, some new website, right? So I, so I said I'm going to charge them for the um, proof of concept. 
My uh, CFO was like, what do we charge them? This, we've got to try and get in. I said, they don't rate us already, right? So giving them stuff is going to change their view of our value prop. We kind of want to get on their radar. So because I was charging them, then I had to go and talk to some people to get the money. So instead of just doing this thing as a little pro bono, little uh, experiment, I started talking to the organization. They liked what we did. We got deeper conversations. I started to multi-thread. I was talking to the CFO. I was talking to the head of e-commerce. I was talking to all the people I could thought, think, think of in the organization who could use this. I was even talking to their external consultants who give us information on the back end. So we've got those other things. We've got this deal going. It's going to be hundreds and hundreds of thousands. It's all due to sign the next three weeks. And I'm going for my medic, and I'm saying, you know, so we know what we know all the metrics, we know the decision making process, we know this, we know that, and R. And what I didn't really, really get down into was a signatory process. So the decision has gone our way. We we're all ready for this, and before it could be signed, I had to go off to someone in the U.S. to sign it, who just said, "Now nah, we've we've got loads of um, English being content over here already. Why don't you just use our stuff?" Boom. <laughs> <laughs> and so what did I learn? Right. Yeah, multi-threading, so important. Forecast probably so important. Always recognize that you might get bitten somewhere else. But also, you can never push too hard on some of the bits that you think are almost obvious. The number of times somebody wants to close a deal at the end of the quarter, right? And they sent it off, and their buyer said yes, and the CFO said yes, but someone in the process isn't there to sign it or stamp it or something. Like that whole, what is the process? Really sitting down with people going, so then what happens? Then what happens? Then what happens? Then what happens? That threat piece. Once you're really excited and you've got a good relationship, people leave, leave that out all the time. And it doesn't necessarily cost you the deal, but that's the biggest source of delay of deals in my view. There's a small piece in the process of actually finalizing that you didn't know about. I think I, I, I was getting a little bit of PTSD as you were talking to Kathy. I'm like, I have to admit, <laughs> I, I don't know if I can say we've all been there, but I've certainly been there. But great, great story. And no, no awards if someone can guess who that deal was with. But uh, <laughs> uh, I'm respecting confidentiality. Yes, yes, ab- absolutely. Um, look, Mike, I've got last couple of bits for you. This, this has been great fun. Got to ask, as you reflect over your career today, appreciate the fact that, you know, you're still well on your journey, but as you do reflect back, is there anything that you would have done differently? Yeah, there are things that went different. I don't really believe in regrets, but there are things that went differently. I remember when I was working for Pitney Bowes and I was doing really well with them. I was two years into sales and I was very young. I'm doing really well. And I've done two years here. I know what it's all about. And there are people that... I've been there for quite a long time. And these people, God, they're all phobies. have been hanging around for ages. And I jumped to the ship and I went somewhere else. And suddenly I'm like in this place, it's another right, it's the same level support, et cetera. And so you know that faltering. So the first thing is I would say to people that don't think just because you've had a good two years, it's time to go somewhere else. We all want to get on with our careers, but really make sure you've got everything you can from that organization, particularly if you're doing well, before you move on. There's that piece. The other piece is more general piece, really. I mean, we've all grown up with our things that we like about ourselves and we don't like about ourselves. We all have our experiences. We have these things that, have that bother us and so on. And some of it even sounds positive. Like, I want to be the best. I want to get noticed. 
I want to build this relationship with the senior team or want to do that, blah, blah. All those things that you are self-conscious about, then it's noise in your head. And those things where if they don't work and not always within your control can sometimes put make get you down. What I think you need to do is become more self-aware. What am I actually doing? What am I trying to achieve? What is my path? How does it fit with these, with these people? And then every time something happens, it's based on something that you've initiated, good, bad, or indifferent. So I say to anybody who, who, who will listen, learn to be less self-conscious and more self-aware, and you'll be happier, more successful. That's a mic drop moment right there, Mike. I, <laughs> I, I think we can, we can wrap up there. Have you enjoyed being on? Loved it, loved it. Really great talking to you, Alex. Absolutely. Well, look, Mike, really appreciate you being there. To anyone listening or watching, please take the time to like, comment and share with a colleague. This has been an awesome episode. Great fun. So please take the time to help us reach more people. Outside of that, have an awesome day and we'll see you on the next one. Thanks for tuning in. Never miss a tactic or actionable insight by subscribing to On Target wherever you get your podcasts. And if you gain value from the show, I would love it if you could share it with a friend and give us a five-star review. See you next time.